electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, Elon Musk wants to practice social distancing, looking to back out of the Twitter deal. We have a lot more on the entire social media landscape. Plus, firms like Andreessen Horowitz normally invest in private markets, but as valuations plummet, they're scooping up a few beaten down tech stocks. We're going to highlight some of those. And then why crypto will rise again. That's the title of one guest's op-ed. We'll discuss why he says the bus tells us precisely nothing, John, about crypto's future. Yeah, we're going to start, though, with Elon Musk looking to back out of this deal for Twitter, setting up a legal fight in Delaware courts. He's not the only one separating himself from a social media company recently. Sheryl Sandberg, remember, preparing to leave Meta. Ben Silberman stepping back as CEO of Pinterest. And of course, Jack Dorsey leaving the Twitter board entirely, focusing instead on crypto and block, formerly Square. Our Julia Borston is here. Julia, it's not just the Musk drama, whether it's ad targeting, content moderation, e-commerce attribution, so much of the social media business is in question. That's right, John. And I would say that each of those social media platforms that you just ran through, they are in very different situations right now, but they are all in a moment of transition. I mean, just to go with the smallest one first, which is Pinterest, they're in a moment of transition of trying to figure out how to make money from commerce. And that's the big opportunity there. Then, of course, Meta shifting to focus on the metaverse, managing all of these Apple operating system changes that make it harder for them to target ads, um, which is something they've been grappling with, and all of that while also competing with TikTok, transitioning to Reels, and then with that ongoing metaverse investment. And then Twitter, that's the big wild card here. We have to see whether Musk is trying to negotiate for a lower price or if he just does not want to own this asset. And uh, depending on, on how this all plays out in the courts, it's not a good thing for Twitter to have someone buy the company that does not want to own the company. So um, a very complex situation here yeah. that Twitter and its board need to navigate. Very few good scenarios on the table at the moment, Julia. Um, this morning, Bernstein writes, if Twitter's board truly understood the game that Elon was playing, they would have deleted his Twitter account over the weekend. Are they joking? Do you think that Twitter needs to handling, handle this the way that Elon Musk might be playing the game? What would that do? Well, look, I, I have to point out those tweets that Elon Musk um, posted uh, late last night. I would have to guess that his legal team did not approve the posting of those tweets. There was a chessboard photo. There was another meme of him laughing um, and basically making fun of the fact that they told him he couldn't buy the company and now they're forcing him to buy the company. And of course, yeah, underlying so all of this they is the take fact that he committed... Could could they what block would that mean? Twitter? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so much distraction. <laughs> exactly. Yes, he hasn't done anything illegal or against, you know, like the code of con conduct or ethics that they have. But I just wonder, you know, they sit back and they're playing by their rules. You know, what would that look like? And could they actually do something like that? I. I 
Among all the things the Twitter board is thinking about right now, I think pulling Elon Musk off the platform is not one of them. And if anything, I think that if he posts these kind of mocking tweets and sort of mocking the whole process, that might actually help Twitter's board when they're in court in Delaware trying to show that he just changed his mind and he's mercurial. So if anything, um, he might be doing himself a disservice in posting those tweets. Although, Julia, you know, one thing that's come up a couple of times today uh, was Ev Williams' tweet to Brett Taylor saying, if I was still on the board, I'd be asking if we can just let this whole ugly episode blow over. Is that view widely shared? Because it certainly runs counter to hiring Wachtell. Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that they hired that top tier law firm and they made it very clear that they are taking this to court. And in fact, we can expect Twitter to file suit in the next couple of days. I don't think blowing over at this point is really an option. And one thing that I'd have to point to is all of the analyst notes indicating that this whole Elon Musk fiasco has been so negative for Twitter as a company. And if you look at the stock um, and if you look at the worst case scenario, which is that maybe Twitter gets a $1 billion breakup fee, of course, they would want to get more in terms of damages. Um, but there's this question of whether or not they that Elon Musk's bid to buy the company, his, you know, his, his this whole process his has just created so much distraction that it's ultimately going to be yeah. really bad for the company. And there are enough other macro issues that the ad industry is reckoning right now. And overall ad pullback, competition, all of these different things, that this is a company that's been weakened by this process. And yes, maybe Musk you know, shown a spotlight on the fact that there are there's real value yeah. here. Um, but if he doesn't go through with it, then then Twitter is going to have an argument that they should be able to get damages from Musk. So we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of value destruction in the stock down 7% at the moment. Also internally, right, Julia, a lot of the employees now stuck in limbo. We're going to stick with Twitter in the larger market. Joining us now, Satori Fund founder, Dan Niles. Dan, good morning to you. It's great to have you with us. Um, I remember you were talking about Meta not too long ago. You liked it at its valuation. What do you think of Twitter right now trading at 34 bucks and change? You know, it's just too much drama for me, so I'm not involved at all. <laughs> and I plan on staying that way. <laughs> so even the drama will make you look past a good valuation, if it is? I don't think it's a good valuation. I never said that. <laughs> I just said that the drama is keeping me away from it. I think one big mistake people making in this market in general is assuming because a company is down 70 80%, the downside is still 100%. It can always go to zero. So I think you need to kind of remember that um, right now when you're looking at a lot of these valuations where just because it's down a lot doesn't mean it's cheap, especially if you're going into a recession where numbers need to get a cut a lot more. And don't forget, Twitter, along with Google, along with Facebook, along with all these ad names, you know, they depend on advertising revenues. And in a recession, the last one we had, you know, real size, 08, you know, ad revenues went down for the industry about 18% or so. So you've still got a lot of estimate cuts in front of you. Hey, Dan, yeah, I'm always trying to figure out in these kind of exciting, distracting narratives what the lesson is for the retail investor. And it seems to me this is about Elon Musk trying to get out of a bad trade. I mean, he signed a deal to buy Twitter at 54.20 a share, and now it's, it's 20 bucks less than that. But also at the same time, you've got VCs these days. We're going to talk about this in a bit, trying to buy beaten down growth stocks here. Um, for example, HashiCorp. Uh, back in March 2020, did a Series E at a $5 billion valuation. It's only $6 billion here. So 
What's the lesson for the retail investor about the so-called smart money and buying high versus not? Well, you know, you have to remember, we entered this year saying we think the S&P is down at least 20 percent. And then in May, we changed that to down 30 to 50. And I think the thing the retail investor needs to remember is the last 13 years were not normal. Um, you had the Fed every time the market went down a little bit, going ahead and increasing stimulus. You had the government doing the same thing. That's not normally how this works. Um, during a recession, it takes you at least a year, sometimes closer to two and a half years, if you look at the tech bubble, for the S&P to find its ultimate bottom from its ultimate peak. So there's a time component of this that I think people are forgetting what is normal. And with the Fed now actually in the mode of cranking up rates, despite growth slowing, it's probably going to be worse than normal. So I think the lesson for the retail investor is if you want to have some fun, like going to Vegas, sure, go ahead and speculate on Twitter or crypto or something. But if you're trying to make money over the long term and you can't afford to sort of use this as entertainment, you need to go back and study history, look at valuations, look at earnings, and try to find companies with good cash flow and recession resistance, or just sit in cash. I think, you know, I've said this multiple times on your show, you know, losing 5 to 7% to inflation is way better than losing 30 to 50% to a stock market correction, unless you're just doing it to have some fun. Yeah, and you're not kidding about the, the 30 to 50, uh, Dan. I'm, I'm wondering, um, I mean, Goldman today lays out a recessionary scenario, 14 times 225, uh, gets you to 3150. Why is your, uh, uh, I guess, hypothetical target much lower than that? What numbers would you be using? Well, for me, I, I'm, I do it pretty simply. I say, well, during recessions, you know, the ones I've looked at, I say, you can have earnings go down about 20% from where the estimates are currently. So if I look at the S&P for 2023, that's about 250 in EPS. Haircut it by 20%, gets you to 200. You put a 15 multiple on it, gets you to about 3,000 on the S&P. That's my thought right now, probably where it ends up, which is in that 30 to 50% decline range from peak to trough by sometime in 2023, in the middle of a recession when the Fed is almost done with raising rates. Um, and, and by the way, those aren't aggressive targets. The down 20 percent EPS, you know, that's about average. And the 15 multiple, you could argue, is actually too high because when you've had CPI running above 5 percent, the multiple is closer to 12 times and um, closer to 3 percent. It's at 15. I'm not sure we get to 3 percent by that time period. I hope so. Um, and but I'm trying to be optimistic and saying 15 times on it. $200 EPS number. So, Dan, as we get into the thick of earnings season, perhaps as the next catalyst for where stocks are going, I know that you've noted that uh, the likes of Intel, Microsoft, Target, they cut guidance or, you know, guided lower um, shortly after reporting earnings. As we head into the next group of companies to report, do you think that they have a good enough view of the macro situation? Can we trust their guidance in the few weeks, in the next few weeks? Well, look at it this way, right? You had, as you mentioned, you've had some very big companies, Microsoft, Intelsoft pre-announced. Restoration Hardware gave guidance at the beginning of June, cut it by the end of June. Um, and so things are changing so fast right now that I think, you know, it's a process, as I've said before. Nobody knows, including the companies, myself, you, where this is going to ultimately end up. But if fundamentals keep getting worse, which they are, and the Fed, instead of cutting, is now 
busy trying to raise rates to slow the economy down. That just tells you numbers are going to go down a lot faster than what you think. And we've had a few tweets on this, but just look at the dollar. The dollar on average in April, when these companies last guided, was about 101. Today, it's at about 108. So it's up 7%. 30% of S&P earnings are from abroad. So that's a 2% cut right there to the guidance that they're going to give for September quarter. And then on an EPS basis, that's probably closer to a 4% impact. So that's just from currency. That's not even talking about demand, inflation, any of those things, or inventory build, which Walmart, Target, Mm -hmm. for example, talked about that needs to be burned off. That's on top of just the currency. Well, Dan, that's a great view of all the headwinds the companies are facing as we head into it. Uh, Dan Niles, Satori Fund. Always great to get your insights. Thank you. Let's stick with online advertising. Big pair of calls this morning. Uh, Needham's Laura Martin cuts Meta to underperform, warning that investors uh, need to stay on the sidelines as the company pours money into the metaverse. On the flip side, a new CNBC Pro article highlighting Monash Crespi's outlook for Alphabet, saying they see long-term value despite cutting their price target. Our next guest also singles out Alphabet as a leader among large caps, bullish on search, bullish on advertising, and a fan of Meta as well, one of his top picks. Joining us today, Goldman Sachs Managing Director. Director Eric Sheridan. Eric, it's great to have you back. Thanks for the time. Great to see you, Carl. If we are, we're just talking a lot about a recessionary scenario right there. How does advertising, and I guess specifically Meta, hold on if that in fact happens? Well, I think we're going to see downside nodes to numbers if we get a full-blown recession. Uh, I think equity investors believe that's a near certainty. Uh, The channel check work and the industry work we do would tell you that's still a bit of a work in progress. When we look out over this quarter that they'll be reporting in the next three weeks, we actually came away that the prior guidance given by Meta uh, did not have to be changed. And as a result of that, you know, we like the risk reward in the stock here and going forward. Uh, Similar to what Dan just said in the segment before me, uh, Facebook or Meta and Alphabet can now also be valued on gap earnings. They both trade at reasonable multiples to growth. Uh, On the other side of any recession, we would see they're both buying back stock uh, and the large scale players typically operate better through a recessionary period. And we have 08 and 09 to go back and look at as examples of that. Do you think they're making aggressive enough moves on costs to where that growth doesn't outweigh revenue growth in the next couple of years? I think there has been a steady stream of press reports in the last couple of weeks around meta aligning revenue growth with expense in a way that looks like they're taking this fairly seriously in terms of remaining flexible. Alphabet still talks about investing for the long term on their most recent earnings call. But even if you go back and look at prior periods like the first half of 2020, when we had the pandemic or other growth slowdowns, all of these companies tend to slow hiring, slow sales and marketing. But it does appear from some of what we've seen in press reports coming out of Meta, that Meta might be taking that slowdown a little more serious and more aggressively aligning costs. But we'll have to wait to see what the management commentary is in, uh, in about two, two and a half weeks time. Eric, um, from, from the investor perspective, I want to talk about what's broken and what's not in the social space. Because no matter which of these companies we're talking about, they're all affected by these questions of targeting, of attribution. And even in Twitter's case, this bots thing is kind of about uh, the, the real value and real growth of users over time. Uh, who's really got value in the space 
were those who thought that Google had missed the boat on social actually wrong since Google's got YouTube and that seems to be doing relatively well? Well, I think there's a couple things here. I think on social in particular, there were benefits from the pandemic as people were staying at home and looking to be entertained. And frankly, a lot of user growth happened, uh, a lot of time spent happened, and you're burning off a lot of that as the world reopens, hopefully on a permanent basis and we don't go back uh, to being more in a lockdown mode. That would be number one. Number two, you've had a rise of competition. You have an asset like TikTok coming out of ByteDance in China that has seen a lot of user growth, a lot of time growth, and alongside TikTok, you've seen the rise of short-form video, which could potentially be cannibalistic of long-form video and other social media habits. So I think what's happened for investors are you've had targeting changes from Apple, call it to question monetization over the small, uh, short to medium term. I think you've had competition increase, call into question the long-term terminal value. And then you've had some just pan post-pandemic normalization themes. People have got to get comfortable with all of that. And when I go out and talk to a lot of investors, the lack of visibility hmm. into linear results acts as a headwind to this group. So I think what you're seeing investors do is they're defaulting back to if I can value it on a risk-reward basis on 2022 or 2023 mm -hmm. earnings, gap earnings, then I'm willing to wade into a name. But the extent to which you move further up a P&L and try to value a company on a revenue multiple, it, it falls out of favor. Right. Eric, all those factors that you just laid out, it feels like they are hitting Meta the hardest, at least among the mega caps. So when you just said that Meta might be taking the slowdown more seriously, more seriously relative to who? To Google? Because Google's in a very different position, right? Alphabet isn't hit as hard by those advertising or privacy changes from Apple. Um, do you think that Alphabet eventually is going to have to walk back and pull back some of its investments in hiring this year? Well, I think they'll watch for the environment. That's what the history would tell us on Alphabet. Um, Alphabet doesn't guide as a company. So we have our set of results for Q2. We'll see what the company reports. Meta has already guided Q2. It's not a big hurdle rate. They've talked about zero to 5% constant currency revenue growth. We think they can be inside the top end of that range based on our industry work. They've talked about only a modest acceleration uh, in revenue growth in Q3, even though they have much easier comps. We talked earlier about the Apple privacy headwinds. We are lapping those headwinds starting in July. Therefore, even though there could be some recession headwinds for the industry, some of the privacy headwinds are actually turning into tailwinds in Q3 and Q4 of this year. Hey, finally, Eric, a big weekend of news regarding Uber. Uh, this Washington Post report, actually a consortium of, of media entities looking at early practices and when they were trying to grow under Travis. Company says we made mistakes and we were a different company then. Any relevance to, to the fundamentals or the price action today? I don't think it necessarily bears on the fundamentals of the company today. Uh, there was a history of this company. It's been fairly well documented in, I believe, books and TV series and movies about where they were uh, sort of looking for growth at all costs. And it seems like some of the documents that went into um, some of the journalists uh, over the weekend uh, reflect that. Uh, but under Dara Khosrowshahi, this is a very different company today than uh, the pre-IPO company that's reflected in some of those documents as being reported by the press as, as we can tell. Uh, a lot of, uh, lot of news, busy week of news swirling around on some very large companies. Eric, good to get your guidance. Appreciate it. Talk next time. Eric Sheridan, Goldman Sachs.
Still to come, we're still watching what it means when venture capital starts buying public tech stocks. Plus, the fintech name Goldman says to stay away from. Tech Check, just getting started. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Chinese tech Alibaba and Tencent shares. They are sinking after the Chinese government levied fines for failing to comply with anti-monopoly rules. That's sparking a sell-off. Names like JD.com, Pinduoduo, Baidu also falling. They're some of the biggest losers on the Nasdaq 100. The Hang Seng is down close to 10 percent this year in what has been a very volatile few months, few years, John. If you thought that some of that regulatory pressure was ending. Think again. You don't know what Beijing's going to do. Yeah, I didn't think so, actually. <laughs> we talked about this. Tradable and investable are two different things. Also, we started this discussion last week. Venture capital firms changing their structures, becoming registered investment advisors, and as expected, not just to hold stocks, they're buying. The information took a look at some SEC filings this past winter. Andreessen Horowitz and Thrive acquired nearly a million shares of Block and Carvana. Back in May, GGV Capital bought about 400,000 shares of DevOps platform HashiCorp. Most of those purchases in the red so far. For example, HashiCorp, even since late May, but less than half of its IPO price now. Carvana's down more than 90% over the past 12 months. Separately, one hedge fund that was making huge bets in the private funding space, Tiger Global. TechCrunch reporting it plans to limit new funding through the end of this year. But partner Alex Cook has reportedly assured founders that the firm is still sitting on, quote, billions of dry powder, and they plan to raise a new fund later this year. Carl, I, I, I really think that retail investors just pay attention to the signals, right? Like, <laughs> if, if HashiCorp was at a $5 billion valuation when COVID started, and it was $5 billion a few weeks ago, 6 now, it sort of makes sense. The, the VCs who are kicking themselves saying, man, wish we got in on that Series E, well... <laughs> Here's the Series F. Uh, it's interesting, Dean. You know, we, we've talked about the VC angle. Uh, Leslie's going to talk about hedge funds in a moment. Um, the family offices today with Robert Frank. There's a lot going on regarding yeah. different strategies. Here's the problem, though, John. Investors, VCs, they may not be as good as investing in the Series F as they are the Series A or B or C, right? It's those late-stage investors like Tiger Global and SoftBank. They're getting killed in this market. So I wonder if your sort of more typical Silicon Valley VCs like Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia and Thrive, investing in public market companies, um, if they're going to be as successful. Well, I, I mean, but I, I don't, don't know where as the valuations a retail investor, land. And I'm not, I'm not a typical retail investor. 
investor, of course, because we don't buy individual stocks. But I don't care about that. What I care about is in 5 to 10 to 15 years, is this going to be a good asset in my portfolio? And if you can actually buy, if it's a solid company, and I'm not saying anything specifically about HashiCorp, people should do their own due diligence, like Elon Musk, maybe unlike Elon Musk. People should do (laughs) their due diligence. (laughs) But... um, if you were able to get in at that stage, which typically you know, only elite investors in Silicon Valley are able to, if that business is yeah. as sound now as it was two and a half years ago, why not? Discipline. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I just wonder if their tools are equipped for the public market like they are the private market, a Series F as a Series C. I don't know, Carl. We'll see. I mean, this is the whole debate we're having every single day is where do valuations settle? Uh, It actually leads us right to a discussion with our Leslie Picker, who has a more, at least on how hedge funds have performed (laughs) in the first half, LP. Yeah, speaking of crossover investors, Carl, uh, if you follow the averages, then yes, all 28 strategies tracked by HFR are outperforming the S&P for the first half of the year. That includes tech funds with an average decline of 16.5%. Not great in terms of preservation of capital, but outperforming the S&P 500, including dividends, for the first half of the year by about 3.5 percentage points. But some of the more well-known firms, especially those that invest in venture capital, what you guys were just talking about, the, uh, the crossover funds as well as public equities, they have underperformed this year. Various reports showing that Tiger Global is down more than 50%. D1 Co. 2 reportedly also facing big markdowns within their tech-focused portfolios. A shrinking asset base, both in real and on-paper basis, is having a trickle-down effect on the funding markets. Co2, for example, funded 56 deals in the fourth quarter. That figure dropped to just 16 into Q, worth just a sliver of the dollar value of years past. These crossover investors have been partially responsible for changing the supply-demand dynamic for capital sloshing around that startup ecosystem, helping drive up valuations in the ecosystem in recent years, but the reverse effect seems to be playing out now as returns cause them to be much more conservative in deploying that capital, guys. Yeah, Leslie, they used to be called tourist investors, but they, they just became mm-hmm. such a mainstay. Now we call them crossover investors. Interesting look at the other <laughs> side of that. Leslie, thank you. After the break, more on the possible legal outcomes for Musk and Twitter. Don't go away. We're right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. 
Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. We continue to watch the broader market today. Pretty tight range. Dow's down 100. NASDAQ under pressure uh, to start the week, but off of the intraday lows. You got Zoom, Tesla, Lucid down more than 5%. We'll talk more about the selling in a minute. First, though, a news update with Christina Partzinevelos. Christina. Thank you, Carl. And here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Spirit Airlines takeover saga may continue for a little bit longer. Frontier Group, the parent of Frontier Airlines, has asked Spirit to delay a vote on their merger deal until July 27th. Frontier wants the additional time to solicit stronger support for the deal from Spirit shareholders who are also mulling a rival offer from JetBlue. However, Frontier now says it has no plans to increase its most recent bid. Starbucks has stopped selling a new breakfast chicken sandwich after only a week. Starbucks says the sandwich, which consists of chicken, maple butter, and eggs, didn't meet its standards. The company wasn't any more specific on the nature of the issue, but did say it wasn't one that would cause any foodborne illness. And the latest Marvel movie, Thor, Love and Thunder, topped the weekend box office with $143 million in domestic ticket sales. It was the third best debut weekend for any movie since theaters reopened after the pandemic. The two movies ahead of Thor on that list were also Marvel movies, Spider-Man's No Way Home and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. All movies I need to see. Carl, back over to you. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of them this summer. Thanks, Christina. Let's turn back to Twitter's legal battle. This game of chess set to take place in Delaware court. It could go a number of ways, from Musk successfully walking away from the deal to being ordered to make the multi-billion dollar purchase as agreed. Joining us today, Columbia Law School professor Zohar Goshen joins us uh, to weigh in. Professor, it's great to have you because uh, over the weekend, people were reading the Scadden letter and trying to find uh, signs of what would be considered materially adverse uh, it doesn't sound like you found a lot. Yeah, so there are three arguments in the letter that uh, the lawyers are presenting as a justification to walk out of the deal. Uh, the first one is with regard to one of the representations that Twitter made, which is that they have, they estimate that they have about 5% uh, fake accounts out of their monetized accounts. It's very important to understand, they didn't say we have 5% overall. The difference is, assume you have 100 accounts, if they know for sure that 30 are fake, then they are excluding them. It's only the 70 that are left that they say, it might be more here, we estimate that it's going to be 5%. In any case, even if this uh, representation is false or inaccurate, then the contract basically says uh, it's not enough to walk away. What needs to be shown that this uh, um, representation has a material adverse effect on the corporation, meaning that the fact that you got uh, inaccurate information, now it completely changed the value of the corporation. It should be like something substantial, 40, 50% of the value of the corporation. Uh, and I don't think uh, it is reasonable to think that this is what, what's going on, especially when uh, they didn't provide any information over that point. They basically said, my client believed that <laughs> yes. there, are, there are more than 5%. That's it. Yes. So do you think there are tools that can force Musk to close or not? So, so, so they, they have two other arguments. Uh, which I think one of them is, is, is a bit stronger than, than the other, but I don't consider neither of them to be especially strong. One is the claim that uh, he requested information from Twitter and he didn't get it. Uh, 
Um, so from what I read, I understand that they did provide the information and the contract basically says, we need to give you the information as long as this is reasonably required to close the deal. And in this case, there might be suspicion that the information is being requested in order to walk out of the deal and not to stay in the deal. Uh, the third one, which is the one that I think uh, uh, Twitter could have been a, a bit more uh, careful in, in handling, is the fact that they um, uh, they fired two executives and third of the uh, one of the department in the talent acquisition uh, group. Uh, this is a, a covenant that basically asks that the company will stay in normal course of business. So it might be some argument there whether these changes are uh, basically uh, violating that covenant. Uh, I don't. I don't see them as as especially important. And uh, if it's if it's my judgment, then my judgment is that it's it's a normal course of business when there is a downturn in the economy to fire people and to readjust. But these are yeah. the three arguments that they have. Uh, well, professor, my... professor, um, I, I understood that it can all be a bit fuzzy. Here's my big concern about this. Uh, potential lawsuit from an investor perspective. And, and it keys off of the last thing you said about uh, some of those firings perhaps having an impact on the value of the business. As Twitter pursues this case, are they almost required to remain in stasis, not make any dramatic changes to the business, um, even if economic conditions change, even if the competitive landscape changes? Because if they do, in effect, Elon Musk can say, hey, look, right there, they just changed the whole value. I shouldn't have to buy this for $44 billion because this is a different company now than the one that I agreed to buy back in 2022. I, I completely agree with you. And I think that's of all the three arguments that they have raised, this is the one that has some bite to it. Uh, and uh, it's a judgment call whether you think this is really uh, out of the normal course of business to make those changes or not. Um, I, I'm not aware in terms of the information. I'm not aware of anyone walking out of the deal because they didn't get the information. Uh, but this, this, this aspect, there are cases in which people walked out of the deal uh, or, or settled based on that. Uh, so I think in this case, uh, Twitter has the choice between asking for $1 billion uh, termination fee or specific performance trying to force them to, to, to go through with the deal. Obviously, they would go with the specific performance claim, um, which I believe the, 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 the probability of them winning on the claims is much higher. But I see the main issue and difficulty in actually enforcing something like that on Elon Musk. That's yes. what I believe is the hardest part, because uh, in terms of Delaware law, it is normal that when someone loses and the court orders to close the deal, that you close the deal, and no one ever had, had to consider what would happen if the other side would say, you know what, I'm not closing the deal. <laughs> yeah. Now, now yeah. What? what? What are the tools that, that Delaware has to force someone to close the deal? Um, Who knows? So, so that's maybe, maybe we're headed that way. We'll find out. Uh, Professor... Uh, the whole street's wondering about the, the legality of all of this. We appreciate your guidance. Uh, Zahar Goshen from Columbia Law. Thank you. And after the break, why crypto will rise again. That is the title of our next guest up, Ed. We're going to dig into it. And this morning, uh, Bitcoin, where is it? Below 21K, about 2430. We will be right back.
Take a look at Upstart Holdings. That AI lender downgraded to sell at Goldman today. Price target of 14 implies 49% downside. Of course, uh, news last week, they cite a slowdown in revenue, heightened competition as increased funding costs are acting as headwinds. Stock is actually rebounding a bit after a very tough year, down 81%. We'll be right back. Several prominent family offices still investing large portions of their holdings in crypto and blockchain. And now as prices tumble, how are they repositioning? What influence do they have for the broader markets? Robert Frank has a look at that. Robert. Hey, D. Well, a recent survey found that three quarters of family offices were investing or exploring investing in crypto. And 20 percent of them are actually active investors. One of the most active is the Witter family office. They're descended from Dean Witter. The CIO and co-founder Sherry Witter said crypto accounted for about 40 percent of the fund's asset at the peak. She has taken some losses on the token and the venture capital side, but her trading gains, they've been trading the volatility in crypto that has more than made up for the losses. She said big investors have remained believers despite those losses over the past few months. It felt like we were on a plane that was going down and we're both hold, like we're all holding onto the armrests and we're shaking and we're looking at each other. We're like, are you going to pull the shoot? I'm like, no. Are you going to pull the shoot? No. So if no. So no, no one was bailing. Right. No one was going to sell their positions. And Witter now focuses on just what she calls the top 10 tokens and a few startup companies like Flare Networks, Swap Global and a company called Homium which is a digital real estate finance company. John? All right, Robert, thank you. Now, crypto bulls, be careful. According to the latest MLIV Pulse survey, a majority of investors think Bitcoin is more likely to hit 10,000 before it gets back over 30K. But our next guest is betting on crypto's big new future. His latest piece for The Washington Post argues the sell-off isn't indicative of how currencies will perform long-term. The real test will be whether crypto creates services that matter in the real economy. Joining us now, Paul A. Volker, Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and Washington Post contributing columnist Sebastian Malaby. Sebastian, how likely are these cryptos to create services that matter in the real economy? And why don't all of these NFT things that we've been talking about for a couple of years count? You know, the whole point about investing in the future, um, especially in early stage tech, is that a lot of bets go wrong, right? I mean, in a parallel business like venture capital, uh, one in 10 bets going right is, is okay, because the ones that do go right, go right big time, and they make more than 10x your value. So the first thing to say is, you know, I'm not here predicting that it's going to work for sure. I'm saying it has a chance of working. And in a bet on a future technology like crypto, uh, saying it's got a chance of working is good enough to be long. You shouldn't be, I mean, 40% as the family office you were just talking about was, uh, was going for. That's extremely heavy betting. I would not recommend that. But I think that in a diversified portfolio of bets on the future, which is some about clean tech, some about biotech, some about software, you know, having a bet on crypto is completely appropriate because if okay. it works, it could be big. But here's part of what I don't get about that. There are a lot of American companies that have created enormous innovations in general um, that, that transact based in dollars. There are also a lot of great American companies that have created 
fintech innovations that rely heavily on the dollar. Up until this, uh, this era, a lot of them do. But that hasn't boosted the value of the dollar versus other currencies. So why necessarily would uh, you know, crypto innovation mean that individual cryptocurrencies are worth more money? Well, I mean, you're right to raise the question. I would say that on the margin, the dollar value is higher than it would be otherwise because it's such a useful currency, because there are so many uh, good ways you can save it, invest it, and so forth. That's why it's a reserve currency. That's why it's structurally a bit overvalued. That's why the US has a current account deficit year in, year out, because the dollar is a strong currency. Um, But, I mean, you're raising a good point that there's no certain connection between a project uh, let's say, you know, Filecoin, a distributed system for saving uh, data on people's servers when they have spare capacity on their gaming server, uh, which you incentivize with a coin. It, it's not certain that just because that project works, the currency goes up. But if they're well designed, they are supposed to be linked. Um, this is very early, as crypto people always say, we're running a bunch of experiments. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that you only need a few of these experiments in using digital tokens to come good for the whole thing to be uh, vindicated. I mean, and it's less about just currencies. It's more interesting, I think, to think about what can you do technologically, which is useful for the world, when you have a digital token that you couldn't do without it. And I think you can incentivize uh, the users in your community to uh, get involved in your project. It's like a United Air Miles, but much more advanced. So, Sebastian, crypto proponents, they love to say that it's early. They love to point to the first wave of the Internet. But in that era, there were easy to understand use cases like radio, but on demand. You can listen to it wherever. What is that for crypto? What is a use case that is better than something that exists today? Well, I think actually the first thing to be said is that even if it's purely an internal game, right, where people are gambling on different tokens that have no meaning outside the token world. Actually, gambling is a big business. And so that could be worth something. Gaming is another big business. And we've seen how play to earn assets at times. Why is it better than gambling or gaming? I mean, even if you're gambling with crypto, what we've seen over the last few months is it's really hard to get your money back in some cases. Well, I mean, if it's a system for gambling that people find attractive, I mean, people go gambling, they go to a regular casino in Las Vegas, they exchange their dollars for some kind of casino chips, right? Think of that as a token. And this is just like an online version of it, if it's very sophisticated. But there is online gambling. There already is online gambling. Right. So why not have some more? Why not have a new kind? Why not have one where you go Because it's supposed to be better than the one that exists, right? Is it better? Is gambling through crypto better than gambling on an online platform? Well, I think when you see a new project like Uniswap go from zero uh, to being worth at 1.14 billion, it's now down quite a bit, but it's still in the multiple billions. It's telling you that people are using this thing, right? And so, you know, the market's verdict on your question is, yes, it's better. People like it more. But I think, you know, the, 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 the interesting thing is this goes bigger, right? This is also about um, creating, let's say, uh, a next generation um, labor market uh, right. for a talent market online, right? Yeah. And you want coders to come to the platform and be hired by Goldman Sachs to do coding projects. And you incentivize those coders to come on the platform by giving them a token, which is generated by the platform. It's a free to issue token when you're starting your company, when you're starting a project. 
But if the project goes well and the platform becomes popular, the token will be valuable in the future. So just like you know, employee stock options can incentivize uh, you know, startup employees to come work at a new startup to take the risk of that, so a digital token can incentivize people to get involved in an online project, which they might not do, without the upside potential of the token. Right. Sebastian, thanks. And D, remember, sure. remember when I compared Dogecoin to Chuck E. Cheese tokens? Where a kid can be a kid. <laughs> it's very prescient, John. Carl? Guys, after the break, we'll get a call on a few chip names. Stay with us. Let's get a gut check on the semiconductor space, receiving new ratings with uh, recession rumors and rising macro risk. Cohen downgrading Corvo from outperform to market perform, saying Android weakness is weighing on revenue, margins, and sentiment, pushing their medium-term estimates well below consensus. On the flip side, seeing some opportunity in the space, Morgan Stanley names Taiwan Semiconductor TSMC a research tactical idea, adding they see shares rising heading into earnings this week. That stock you can see is, uh, let's see, down about 2.4%. We'll be back right after this. One more thing today. That's the Uber files. The Guardian publishes this investigation based on 124,000 confidential documents focusing on, in its words, how Uber broke laws, duped police, and secretly lobbied governments in its rapid global expansion. The leaks in particular focusing on the company's strategy under former CEO Travis Kalanick. Uber responded to the leaks saying they're not making excuses for past behavior and asking the public to judge them by what they've done over the past five years and what they will do now. We talked with Eric Sheridan and Goldman a moment ago, John, about that. And it's clear that there was a period where it truly was growth at all costs. Uh, it was. And I mean, it's a complicated legacy. They, they broke some rules. They did some things um, that, that were seriously questionable, D. We also have to understand the taxi lobby was really mm-hmm. strong back then. If you tried to get a taxi in San Francisco or D.C. 15 years ago, it was an awful experience. And if we were going to get ride sharing, um, yeah. some things were going to have to happen. It was absolutely complicated, um, but to see the legacy of the Travis Kalanick days, um, there were so many stories continue to sort of taint the image of the company today. But of course, Star Crosser Shahi has done a lot to clean up that image, Carl. Yeah, uh, much different. Guys, we're one day closer to CPI, Pepsi, Delta, and of course the bank earnings, which begin in earnest on Thursday. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.